0: Oh, this is not a dharma talk.
1: <laughs>
0: but thank you for coming back anyway. <laughs> so we want to take this evening for some time for questions that might be up for you, or anything you'd like some more expansion or reflection on. And we really would like that to quite stay related to what's actually going on here in the retreat or what we've been raising in the Dharma talks or instructions or your own practice. So any kind of far-reaching Buddhist philosophical questions about the nature of Advaita and shunyata, I would just ring the bell. <laughs> Hope that was clear. (coughs) (laughs) You can be ruthless. ruthless. So we will endeavor to do our best and to remind each other to repeat the questions back to you (coughs) um, so that everyone can hear. So has anyone got anything they'd like to bring forward? Yes.
2: Maybe before, there won't be any recording of this, so.
0: <clears throat> yes, I said there was. Oh. You know there is. There is? Yeah. Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so anything can be held against you. Be, w- <laughs> be, be wary, no names. <laughs> it goes in your file, yes. <laughs> It goes, goes on our website. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question,
1: um, perhaps for you know, or any, uh, um, following up on your comment this morning that there's not much we can do about a, uh, It's I, I would like you to, if you would please, explain that, or is it
2: in my DNA, or, or how did it... I mean? No, no, it's not in your DNA. So the question is referring to what I said this morning, that um, we don't have a choice at the moment of experiencing Vedana, what type of Vedana that is. So um, whether I could expand on this, whether it would be in my DNA. So no, this is not some kind of Buddhist preordained determinism or so. It's just at the moment of the arising of Vedana, uh, Vedana is resultant, and part of it has to do with my uh, the fact that I'm a human being, that I would probably prefer temperatures somewhere between uh, 15 and 35 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. Yeah?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that, you know, there is some leeway for preference in this. But basically, since, you, since you're settled with the human bodies, human bodies just thrive better somewhere in that, in that range. It's not your personal karma or something like that. It's just the vipaka of being born in a human body or with a human body. And human bodies generally tend to thrive somewhere in that temperature range. Now, some of the vipakas are due not to body, but they're due to previous conditioning. So, whether you like grunge rock or Bartok string quartets, is largely due. It's not genetic. It's or it's not preordained through you having a human body. It's it is through what you have learned to listen. Yeah. So, none of this cannot be changed. You know, the the same experience also will not produce the same type of Vedana, you know. Uh, a plate of spaghetti may really look tempting when you're hungry and after you've eaten two of those, the third one will look a lot different. You know, it may give you a slight nauseating feeling. You know? So uh, it is due to previous conditions. You know? And at the moment of your experience of the Vedana, your choice is the degree of consciousness you you can have around his experience, and your choices, what you do with the like or the dislike, whether either you lunge into aversion or whether you lunge into enacting your desire to get it or get hold of it. Okay. I hope this is uh, so you more clear. Learn, behaviorally, you can learn to change. Yeah, obviously, your your behavior will, over time, change future if you start listening to more more grunge rock you may develop a profound deepening of your aversion to grunge rock or you may <laughs> to your surprise you know develop a more deep appreciation for yeah it's, both are possible I,
0: Um, I mean, we certainly didn't advertise it as a study retreat. Oh, we were surprised, um, being quite new to this retreat format, um, that we don't include any sort of textual study time. There are indeed different forms of retreat. Um, you know, this one is not, generally speaking, IMS does not put forward retreats that have that component of textual study. Um, on occasion, we have taught study retreats here. Hmm? I mean, the basic theme of IMS, of course, is around sustained practice, and the textual learning that y- you gain from a retreat basically comes through the medium of the dharma talks, rather than self-study or group study. Um, there are numerous situations where a different kind of retreat is offered and you would be a more conscious, conceptual participant in that kind of study. So it's just good to recognize these different strands. I mean, the three of us value really deeply the study component and we provide quite a few situations where that is really our specific theme. Um, And we also provide this kind of situation where the emphasis leans slightly more, well actually quite a bit more, to in-depth experiential practice. But that's in no way a statement of us somehow not valuing the other part.
2: There's a study center just down the road, 15 minutes from here. Buddhist <laughs> study center, which does precisely that. Several hours a day you will have texts, which will be in-depth studied and talked, and then uh, together also uh, meditated upon.
4: I think, I can I just add something to I that? Think, I think it's worth pointing out that the study element is enormously important, but sometimes it actually only makes sense once you've had quite a lot of experience. So rather than the study form and what you're learning out of that shaping the experience, what we're having is the experience first and seeing how that study element relates to the experience. So it's a slightly different way around to uh, the way study is often done. But it is enormously important and the Buddha certainly um, expected people to study what he'd what he had taught, and that's become a huge tradition in, in the varying Buddhist traditions over the centuries. And, you know, as Christina said, I think all three of us deeply value that, and, and all of us teach, study um, oriented things whereby we use text. But actually it's good to have the experience before that, before it's actually shaping that experience.
0: Getting caught in. in hindrances. And I I've never heard this before. I've
1: never heard about um for sort of skills and guidance about what how to change that. I've 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 heard a lot of practices about noticing and being able to recognize,
0: but not about actually doing something about it. And I wondered how about that. Okay, so if I just feed the question back first. It was um Uh, Reflection on the morning's instructions about really noticing the mechanisms that we enact around the pleasant and the unpleasant through the sense doors, and also the theme that was raised in the discussion group about uh, being more actively engaged in changing hindrance states, rather than the kind of information you've sometimes listen to which is more simply about the noticing or the witnessing or, yeah, the noticing of what's going on rather than that kind of more active engagement. Does that really frame your question? Um, I'm sure we'd probably all like to have a little mm. bit of a stab at this. Um, <laughs> You know, I have my doubts about uh, the meditative pathway being presented solely as a path of noticing. Uh, I mean, I just have my misgivings about that. Um, It's part of it. You know, part of mindfulness is establishing the simple knowing of what is actually occurring. That is certainly one of the components of sati or mindfulness. Um, I think, but of course, mindfulness is not a prescription for passivity. So, uh, you know, if one looks at the kind of width and the the depth of what sati is, uh, and also the very definition of meditation, which is bhavana, or to cultivate, to bring into being, there's nothing in the definitions or the translations of bhavana, which describes Bhavana, which usually translated as meditation, as simply watching. Okay? It is about a conscious cultivation. And it's about a conscious cultivation of the wholesome, the skillful and the liberating. So it's very important to acknowledge, yes, part of sati, part of mindfulness, is establishing that core knowing. This is quite a skill actually, you know, it's no simple thing. Um, We're much often in imagining or speculating or interpreting. So to establish that simple knowing is actually quite a gift, but it doesn't quite take into account the way that sati, or mindfulness, is always engaging with what is called skillful or right or wise effort. And those wise efforts have a direction you know, and and that's where they meet the whole quality of bhavana or cultivation. Because the direction very much, as John mentioned in the talk last night, is really nirvana. You know, it is bringing about the end, the cessation of, you know, the struggle and the suffering and the pain caused through greed, hatred and delusion. So satya is always interacting with wise effort, what it is helpful to bring into being, what it's helpful to sustain, what it's helpful to relinquish, what it's helpful to not bring into being. So, you know, that those kind of applications of skillful or wise effort, you know, they're, they're not a kind of conceptual kind of, oh, should I do this or should I do that? You know, they become quite naturalized on the basis of that simple knowing so that's my first stab who would like to continue John
4: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with Christina there's the basis which is the fundamental basis of simple awareness I'd call it simple awareness um, which is absolutely necessary all of the other in a sense forms of sati that we have Take place on that because this is actually, as Christina's already described, is actually knowing. What it's knowing is the landscape of your mind, the topography of your mind, and the topography of your experience, and that's no easy matter. However, if you just leave it at that, and I think I've said it a number of times in different places on this retreat, certainly in a couple of groups, if we just leave it at simple awareness, well, I have a feeling that all we have is a better view of the mess. That's all, Um, and that is not what the Buddha was talking about. Certainly some things will change by acknowledging them, by knowing that they're there, but of course what the primary dimension of simple awareness gives us is then choices, because if I don't know it's there, if I don't know if it's in in my experience, if I don't know it's in my mind, um, then I can't actually make choices. I can't actually do things. So this is actually the preliminary to doing things. So simple noting in this way takes us so far, but it certainly won't take us to that goal of nirvana um, that the Buddha speaks about. So we have many, many dimensions of sati. And you know, often when we've been together, for example, at Kinshina, we'll give a very eloquent talk about the very variegated forms of sati or mindfulness that we have for different applications. And some scholars, for example, have begin to, begun to delineate some of these forms of mindfulness into the, and sort them out into the various forms and, uh, that they take. And they actually become much, much more proactive. You know, They're things that you do and things that you don't do. You know, for example, um, in understanding this, and again, I think Christine has already mentioned this, what we are actually beginning to discern in our experience is, for example, the wholesome and the unwholesome. Opting to cultivate the wholesome, notice that word again, cultivate, to bring into being. And I wouldn't say let go of the unwholesome because actually the activity of, of the movement away from the unwholesome comes through the development of the wholesome. So it's not an actual letting go. As you probably know, it's a fairly useless term, let go. I don't know what it does to you, but when I hear the term let go, I go (laughs) like this. (laughs) You know, I'll just hold on even further. Um, So what we are actually identifying is things to be cultivated, activities to be engaged in. And just just a quick, um, a quick um, survey of this before I pass it over to Kinshino. For example, we can discern protective awareness. Awareness, actually, that's like a gatekeeper on a city gate that doesn't let some things through. It actually lets in the friends and keeps out the enemies of the city. This is really important. Um, it's actually, and I think I described this as one of my groups, you know, it's a bit like uh, uh, somebody who has a problem with alcohol going into a bar. You know, you don't go into the bar. You protect yourself. From that, particularly if you're on a recovery program, you don't go into that situation because you know it's dangerous. You know where it's going to lead. So, for example, you can see the arising of certain conditions in the mind, which you know from experience will take you into certain places, into certain desires, into certain cravings, into certain aversions, and perhaps you actually you stop yourself at that point. You know, you don't allow it to go any further. So, it's a very proactive thing. It's actually about stopping that. It might be, for example, trauma. You know, something that's really painful, still very tender, that actually does not need to be revisited right at this very moment. And actually that idea of just simply looking at it might actually be very detrimental uh, to your mental health at that stage. And so it's not saying never is putting it to one side and protecting one's own mind at that moment. And then there are forms of, um, sati, for example, which are about the removal of something which has got through, something that's already got through into the psyche, and that's often likened to a surgeon with a probe, actually probing the dimensions of an arrowhead, in which, in in, in order to remove it, with causing the least damage um, to the person. So it's actually saying, well, how can we remove something? Uh, for example, a, a deep craving, or a, um, you know a desire of some sort, or an aversion, how can we remove that in the most skillful possible way? And coming back to something we've done you know, for the last few days in the retreat, there is also deliberate concept formation, you know, which also comes under the noting of sati, which is something like metta. You, know, you actually deliberately, conceptually, cognitively reframe certain situations to handle them more skillfully. Uh, to orient the mind in particular ways. And this is just, I think, part of the toolbox that we get with this word sati. So trying to sort of homogenize sati into just watching, I think, actually does it a very, very great disservice. You know, we end up you know, just with a monolithic form of sati, which actually doesn't really change us that much. It just, as I say, will give us a better view of what is going on without really affecting major changes in our life. Uh, Affecting major changes, I think, again, Christina alluded to this, really does take the form of actually making effort, right effort, in one's life and knowing how to develop the wholesome, to kind of develop that wholesome and, in a sense, um, let the unwholesome start to wither away through the development of the wholesome. And that's kind of just... I could go on for the rest of the evening, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass it over to Kinshina <laughs> before I feel tempted. <laughs> I'd like to go
2: back to some of the question. I heard two parts to it. first part was referring to this morning's instruction about Vedana. And you're, actu- you're absolutely right. The, the task is to identify <clears throat> uh, these spikes in our experience where we ex- feel clear clearly uh, register pleasure and displeasure. Um, To actually notice that in my books, despite all what my two fellow speakers have already uh, very eloquently clarified, despite uh, the juxtaposition between noticing and doing something about, which I believe you, you voiced, I do actually think that noticing is already doing something about. The act of noticing something is changing your position, as John pointed out, and giving you choices. If you don't notice, there's, the option of a choice doesn't even arise. So for this specific exercise this morning, noticing was all that was asked for. Uh, the second part of your question was about the hindrances. and. I wouldn't want to lump those two things into one thing. Vedanas are not hindrances. Hmm. Hindrances are more complex patterns in our, in our, in our experience and um, vedanas are relatively simple patterns. Also, as I said, you don't have a choice about vedanas. You do have a choice about hindrances. Um, we do say things about hindrances. There is no broad spectrum medication for it because they need differing Approaches all of them. You can't handle lethargy and sloth in the same way as you can handle doubt. Also, the sources of these hindrances are not just in your meditation. They are in your life. If you have agitation and compunction and remorse, then this is something indicative of a, a necessary change in your life. Yeah? This is not something you can fix with a meditation technique. So, uh, one way we hesitate to give... Uh, panaceas for these hindrances, is that because we acknowledge the power they have, their roots are in our lives. And if you want to, to uproot the hindrance, you need to look at where the roots grow. It's, it's not enough to just clip a, a leaf or so.
1: Um,
2: the strategies we can engage with in terms of formal meditation practice are relatively limited. You know, when you're sleepy, you can pull yourself up. You can open your eyes. You can deepen your in-breath. You can visualize the color white. You can emphasize the beginning of your breath. You can hold your breath for a while and make sure that your, uh, whatever it is, is called, hunger for oxygen brings you back to greater wakefulness. It's very likely to happen. You know? As an intervention <laughs> technique, this is quite effective. As a sort of sustainable, long-term approach to sleepiness, it's not very effective. You know? Just holding your breath doesn't cut it for most situations in your life, and so forth. So it's not as simple that it can be fixed. If you don't notice the occurrence of the hindrances, none of them really can be addressed. So the noticing clearly is only the beginning, but the necessary beginning. So I hope we have given you some some response. (laughs)
1: some of them are going right? Lots of them, yeah. yeah. So, can there be some effect of neuroplasticity in the gut? Hmm. For example, could um, sort of mindfulness, some mindfulness practice, interrupt the loosening of the
2: esophageal sphincter? Who, who knows? I, the question is too complicated to really repeat in detail. But I, I guess the, the general gist is: you know, can mindfulness practice, can meditation uh, of the of the nature we're doing here, actually uh, be used to produce very specific alterations of uh, probably malfunctioning parts of our physique? Is that correct? Yeah.
0: In short form. Yeah. Short form, please. Okay. Okay, just short form.
2: <laughs> there is plenty of research in this stuff. I mean, this is slightly outside of our sort of core uh, business. But uh, there is a great fascination of particular medical profession in actually using this very uh, sp- for very specific types of suffering. Uh, you will have to Google your way in there. Uh, I'm sure somebody... I know plenty of people who have done studies on the impact on mindfulness practices on fibromyalgia, depression, anxiety, uh, all kinds of things. So, Google your way in there. I have no doubt that body awareness practices, particularly a practice that is receiving what is happening, not trying to fiddle with it before I actually understand it properly, but the the practice of actually receiving what is happening on a personal level, and maybe science will catch up with proving this at some point is going to help you for your specific concern, your specific ailment, whether you can administer that to unsuspecting patients you know is another' is in another <laughs> league yeah? but as a personal path to Deepen your relationship to the somatic intelligence at work. I have no doubt that uh, particularly body awareness practices can be very powerful.
4: Yeah, yeah I agree with that. And I just, well, just one final comment which might amuse you. Um, I think the philosopher Nietzsche discovered this uh, much sooner than the kind of neuroscientists, because he said in the 19th century in Twilight of the Idols Show me a man's philosophy and I'll tell you what he had for dinner. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> just, one, just one small thing I would want to add. I mean, from a, you know, an experiential point of view, you know, in this tradition, we don't speak about mind and body. we speak about mind, body, heart, body, this constant interface of messages from conscious, from mind to body, from body to mind, and some of those messages are quite helpful and some of them are obviously unhelpful. You know, we have no doubt we live in a culture which, um, you know, as minds become more stressed and overextended, the body obviously often pays a heavy price. Now, my place of reservation of stepping back from that a little bit and just bringing in a different side is that when people hear that, for some people it becomes a new case for self judgment. You know, and that if I was a better meditator, I wouldn't have this. You know, or if I was a really good meditator, I wouldn't get sick. Or, you know, if I was a, an accomplished meditator, I wouldn't get cancer. So it's just to be very, very careful that that. You know, some of the ways that we're looking at mind-body connection do get hijacked, can get hijacked by tendencies that then turn them into a pattern of self-blame. You know, so I just want to add that temporary note because, of course, what that doesn't take into into consideration is that the way so you know the way that we are not in control of all conditions as we know. And there are so many conditions that affect our bodies and the health of our bodies and the life of our bodies, you know, which are simply, you know, they, they're genetic inherences, they're conditions outside of our control. So please don't blame yourself for being sick.
2: Also don't blame others, you know. <laughs> and don't blame anybody, you know, just recognize and deal with, with what's right in
0: front of you. <laughs>
2: Okay, I'll try. Question How uh, mindfulness and vipassana relate to each other? So let's call mindfulness sati. Yeah? As part as in satipatthana and in anapanasati and in kayagata sati, as a function of minds that is both at the heart of inside practices, generally called vipassana and stillness or calm practices generally called samatha. So, these terms have had different currency in different uh, times. If you look at the very earliest part of Buddhist teaching, the term vipassana is actually, it does occur, but a lot less often than we might think. And whenever it does occur, it always occurs together with another term called samatha. So you have insight and stillness being ma- mentioned in one breath. Almost in most... So to, in, I do. I checked it up. I found about 60 instances of it and most of the instances actually refer to both of them within three words. Yeah. Vipassana is also <clears throat> understood in many early texts not as something you do but as something you get when you practice meditation. Yeah. So the, the way... Many people today understand the term vipassana is not as a result of meditation practice, but it is actually the name of the meditation practice they do. Yeah? So, uh, then several people who have been very influential in making this meditation we practice here, or uh, we're in the Inside Meditation Center here, uh, famous in the West, have their particular spin on the term vipassana. Yeah. So we now have a term that claims to be very old. That is used in one way in the old text. And we have a popular understanding of this as a meditation technique. And we have a few people who have their own definitions of that term. So it becomes a little bit difficult to agree which type of vipassana we're talking of. Yeah. Um, in the old texts, very clearly, the key practice is that of sati. Of mindfulness. Now mindfulness uh, is not in itself liberating in the Buddha, early Buddhist teaching. The Buddha nowhere says mindfulness makes you free. He nowhere says mindfulness makes anger go away. He nowhere says it's enough to be mindful and you'll be free from your greed. Now, mindfulness is an indispensable uh, key function of mind, both for the development of stillness and of insight, but it's it, it's it's a team player. It uses lots of other things. If you listen to us, you will have heard some of these other things. Wise emancipatory effort is mentioned. Uh, comprehension, you know, contextualizing capacity is mentioned. Brahma viharas are mentioned. So uh, there are a number of other qualities. One of them is called atapi, which means ardency or keenness. Yeah. So Sati in early Buddhist psychology is rated to be indispensable, but by no means the only thing that makes us free. Now, if we apply Sati, if we apply mindfulness with all these things, clear comprehension, wise effort, enough keenness, uh, loving kindness, or sorry, John, again, uh, friendliness, you know, if we, have a mindfulness that is equipped you know then and we apply that mindfulness to our experience then we will generate vipassana we will generate insight into the nature of things if you want a nutshell definition of vipassana it is basically that we at any moment of our experience have a clear comprehension of the impermanence of the uh, conditioned nature of that experience and on the fact of the fact that it doesn't belong to us that we are not it that it doesn't constitute ourself. I hope this is, in the necessary brevity, an attempt, yeah? Contradictions?
0: Mateo with I, was, I, was, attempt. I was
4: just waiting for the etymology, that was all.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, V, an, an emphatic prefix, yeah? There's many other meanings for we, but in this particular case, v means <laughs> emphasis, strong. <laughs>
0: He was joking. Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He took the bait. Passity to see. (laughs) I'll pay you back.
0: Okay, so the question is about doubt and specifically, and it's very good to highlight that specifically as one of the hindrance factors, okay, because there are many different kinds of doubt spoken about, you know, and clearly the the kind of questioning, investigative doubt in this teaching tradition is considered to be not only very helpful but very essential, okay. Okay. So the kind of doubt that we're speaking about as a hindrance factor, it, you know, it appears with different faces. Um, but it's basically paralyzing. Um, it's. I often think of it as kind of a fruition of the other hindrance factors, you know. If my craving fails and I don't get to be the kind of meditator and have the kind of meditations I want... I end up in doubt, you know. If I feel like I'm stuck in aversion, I'll end up in doubt, you know. If I spend my retreat asleep, you know, I'll probably doubt my capacity, you know. If I run around with restlessness and agitation, they'll probably doubt that I can ever make this work, you know. So often it's really important to see the hindrances as relational qualities, you know. You know, and doubt then manifests in different ways. You know, obviously the content is different, I might say. You know, the content seems to change. You know, I might have doubt in the practice, I might have doubt in the schmucks up on the podium, you know, I might have doubt in this whole Buddhist thing, you know. Um, Mostly I have doubt in myself. Mostly I have doubt in myself. Mostly I have. Uh, it's a hindrance factor that's often arising out of a, a stunted sense of inner capacity, I would say, diminished sense of inner capacity, sense of impossibility. It's often a very, very long story behind doubt, isn't it? And that's why we always say that hindrance factors are never retreat experiences. They manifest in quite starkly life, life experiences. So there's often a very, very long story behind doubt, a very long self-story, one that may be developed through our own experiences, it may be one that's been told to us by others. But, you know, clearly we come into the retreat and environment and, you know, we're making an effort and we, you know, we have aspirations to get here and you, you hear all this information about, you know, developing, deepening, and we bring with us, you know, that, often quite powerful ground tendency um, that then manifests, you know, arises, and the outcome of course is always the same. And so it becomes a closed feedback loop because doubt, when it arises, tends to have the effect of being quite paralyzing of, wise effort, wise intention, sense of possibility. And of course, so when all of that is paralyzed, you know, we feel more and more stuck in the experience we don't want to be in. The self-view gets added to that, you know, I can't do this. So it's very useful to recognize that doubt generally has quite a long history. It's really important to know it. You know, sometimes we just only kind of uh, get a sense of its um, effects. You know, oh, I, I, I think I'll, you know, kind of shorten my schedule today, you know, it's a bit much for me, you know. And, or we might find ourselves comparing a lot with others, you know. Or we might find ourselves packing our bags you know, or we might suddenly find that we're <coughs> kind of uh, setting up quite a strong parallel schedule, one that feels more manageable for me in my incapacitated state, you know, so, or we, we might just go to sleep if it all gets a bit much, you know. So, so, you know, it's very important to kind of start spotting, because doubt doesn't always have that clear voice, you know, of doubt. it it often has has these very much more behavioral adjustments that we start to make that are really manifesting the fact that I believe I can't do this.
4: Hmm? Perhaps I can say just a little bit, a tiny bit more, just to expand it, just a little bit around the business of paralyzing. Because I would actually like to add, although it's not there in the original language, I'd like to add the word skeptical doubt to the word doubt, because this is not just doubt per se. It's not the kind of doubt which is, in other words, asking right questions that move us forward. And is often built on the kind of experience that we've already had. This is the kind of doubt that says, I'm not going to do this until these certain questions are answered. So it's actually a whole range of questions Generally, which appear to be quite rational, yeah, appear to be quite rational questions, um, but actually stultify any movement um, in terms of action. So, what Christine is saying about, you know, having in a way um, basically sabotaging effort and sabotage, uh, sabotaging energy, for example, and all of these things which are so important, um, all of these get sabotaged by basically asking a whole range of questions, effectively, which actually haven't got answers a lot of the time. you know. Now, some of this can be cognitive, and we could actually throw up those questions, and a lot of it can be just attitudinal, <clears throat> you know? I need to be convinced that this is the right thing to do. And sometimes that can appear to be legitimate, and other times it's simply not legitimate. And this is why, you know, just in the history of thought, basically skepticism has been a position that actually has no refutation. You know, the only thing you can do is bypass it and get on with doing things. You Remember the example when I was introducing the hindrances that I gave of the, the, don- the donkey who's confronted with a bowl of oats and a bowl of carrots and he can't choose between the two because he doesn't know which is the best you know, and that thus starves to death as a result of it. And, you, know, you can see, paralyzed, don't know which to choose. Which one shall I engage in? Well, actually, the only thing to do in that circumstance is to act, isn't it? That is the only refutation of skepticism, of that form, is to actually engage in action, to deal with the paralysis by doing something.
0: Um, I've been noticing that during the times I'm sitting, the hindrances are not manifesting very strongly and they manifest when I'm not. Like when I'm eating, or like all the other time. (laughs) 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 Like I've managed to be able to meditate so that I don't experience them. (laughs) But it's not necessarily translating into my regular experience. Is this common?
2: <laughs> <laughs> what do you suspect? Yeah, <laughs> you're <laughs>
0: repeating the, so you repeat the, the question. You're repeating the
2: question. <laughs> so, uh, Maybe. I'm not sure whether people have heard, you, you heard the question. Yeah. The <clears throat> A meditator tells us that she doesn't feel the, me- the hindrances very strongly when she, med- when she sits in formal meditation. However, outside of formal meditation situations, the, the, medi- the hindrances seem to be uh, noticeable or yeah, quite strongly. Uh, whether this is a common symptom I did not know, to be
4: honest. <laughs> You've obviously got shy hindrances. <laughs> yes. In your meditation.
0: No, I, I think there can be different things happening, you know. I mean, the one thing that can be happening is that when you sit, the conditions come together for your concentration to be more focused. And that when you're outside of that, those conditions you know, and there's many more trigger patterns, you know, many more contact moments, many more triggers that you're more aware of, of kind of, many of those hindrances coming to the surface. That's a real possibility, by the way. You know, because often, you know, certainly, Buddhist teachers often said, you know, like, concentration blindfolds Mara, you know. So concentration, in a way, protects the mind from hindrance attacks. Now, it's very interesting, I think it's really significant, um, because I think for many people, God does come the other way around, you know, that they're really aware of the power of the hindrances when they sit, and actually because the awareness is less outside of the sitting, it's not that the hindrances aren't as strong, they're simply not as known, okay? So, you know, it's I think there's a kind of sensitivity, uh, you know, it, without, con- without deep concentration, moderate con- concentration, I, I think there's a certain sensitivity to, you know, how the hindrances are actually being felt in sitting for many people. If there's more concentration, they're not going to be felt in such an extreme way. But the really significant piece is actually really knowing how those patterns are operating in the contact moments. You know, because you know like like meal times times outside of the hall, uh work periods, you know, because in many ways, I do feel that the hindrance patterns have become so naturalized and normalized almost that they're hardly even noticed to be kind of unhelpful things to be engaging in uh, you know they they've just become so normalized that they don't stand out as being these particular patterns and these particular mind-states actually moving through us. So it's actually very helpful to have that awareness outside of the sittings. I mean, if they're present in the sittings, they're present in the sittings. If they're not present in the sittings, they're not present in the sittings. So really, the, 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 the business of the practice, so to speak, is to be mindful of those times when the hindrances are operating. So for different people that will be, but for almost, I would say, this is a terrible generalization, but outside of the sitting practice where the triggers are there, the contact moments, you know, for anyone to imagine the hindrance patterns aren't being triggered along with them, probably involves some sloth and torpor, some manifestation of dullness, some manifestation of, of numbness, of not seeing. So it's very, very useful in terms of, of, you know, uh, practice being a meditative way of seeing, rather than something we just do with our eyes closed. As a sort of, uh, you know, as a kind of training in our lives, it's really so helpful to be aware of how the hindrance patterns are actually arising and being triggered through contact. Because then, as, as already been mentioned, we have choices, you know. We have choices, and because being aware that what we practice we get better at, you know, so if we practice those patterns a lot, we will get a lot better at them. We will get better at aversion, you know, we will get better at agitation, we will be more, more our default mechanisms. So, you know, I think there's parts of what you ask that are really important, you know, recognizing that concentration does, blindfold, The hindrances temporarily. Mm -hmm. But it's not there outside. Mm -hmm. Not the same degree. Outside of the sitting. Mm -hmm. Thank
2: you. It may be fair to also say, you know, if you're not having absorptive meditative depth, basically what you get is hindrances. Yeah. Not just, but there will always be some degree of hindrance is present uh, until you have a jhanic experience, just full stop. I think that has to be straightly stated, Yeah, uh, and jhanic experiences are primarily defined by the falling away of those <laughs> hindrances and a few other things, but that's one of the key hallmarks of a jhanic experience is that the hindrances are not present at that time. Yeah? I think the interesting thing is to figure out which are, as in the Spirit, I understood, Christina, to the specificity of your trigger points. You know? And to give yourself credit for actually noticing this. You know, notice the discrepancy, mm-hmm. but also notice often enough when we're under the sway of hindrances outside of formal practice, we just enact them. You know, it's exa- we don't even have, have a, a reflective consciousness that says, hey, this is a hindrance. It's just, we just naturally gravitate <laughs> to whatever, you know, wherever the wind blows.
4: I think that's one of the hallmarks. I really haven't much else to add to it, but I think this is one of the hallmarks of hindrances. They feel natural. They feel like human nature. We don't actually notice them because um, it takes real effort to notice the hindrances a lot of the time because they're so naturalized into our behavior, our ways of thinking. The kind of question that came up previously about doubts. well, it's kind of natural to have those doubts, isn't it? about this sort of thing. Uh, isn't it natural um, to want to avoid things? And so on and so forth about them. And so there's a kind of naturalization to them, I think, which masks them a lot of the time in our ready experience. They're so we don't see them. Um, and what I wasn't kind of being facetious when I said they're kind of shy. I was actually trying to indicate that's what they do. They go into hiding, in a sense, when you're in a, in a, in a more unified state, in a more absorbed state. They kind of are there, but they're not so obvious, they're not so present. Uh, The real effort actually is noticing it in ordinary life, I think. Really, really seeing it um, as they manifest. And the good training ground, if it happens, is actually sitting on the cushion. When you just notice, you you just notice that twinge of resentment about something, that twinge of, actually, I don't like this even if it's at the modicum, you know, the level of really small uh, experience, ill will, that becomes the identification of it. Just suddenly see that arising. That takes actually quite a lot of deep seeing, I would say, to actually get that.
0: Yes, Liz. My
3: question refers to and I'm trying to understand my experience in the, in the practice that you, the three of you have led us through. Um, my understanding is that in working with metta, we're befriending. Not necessarily the object, but trying to cultivate that quality in relation, like even if aversion arises around towards ourselves or towards the benefactor or whoever it is, that we're, we direct metta to, to that aversion work with that. So, in the way that, that, that Christine, that you led, Ed and John, and then contrasting with Akinciano, I found, I mean, I, I found all of them beneficial, but I did find that in the one that you led, Akinciano, I was so overcome with emotion in the visualization that you uh, suggested with the person that expressed unconditional love to me, that's how I work with it, that I don't know if I actually reached any kind of understanding or cultivated a quality of um, uh, of befriending. I was so overcome with emotion that I don't even remember it. I remember the emotion. I don't know if my, my comment is clear. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand. I know that it's, I know that when, when, when Sharon led in January, it was, had a lot of emotional content for me too. So I'm, I'm trying to understand the different approaches and how they represent and how they relate to viewing it as rooted in, in Maitri as opposed to mm. a loving kindness distinction that you've been making. Right.
1: <laughs> mm. <coughs>
2: um, there's a question about our differing uh, ways of presenting meta practice. Um, and. the experience of emotion is actually being so strong as to not allow for the befriending activity is that correct it's
3: sort of like that's what remained yep yeah.
2: let's try to look at meta-psychologically, what do we actually do when we speak of meta? There are a number of small moves there. One of them is orientation towards something, Um, creating space, offering availability, welcoming content, approaching slowly in an inviting uh, type of attention. so this would be part of the befriending process. This would be part of the acknowledging depth. This would be um any activity for geared to resonate with something that is there and to acknowledge its validity of existence would have to have these psychological moves, yeah? Orient, capacity to orient towards, open up, invite in, resonate gently with it. Yeah. Now, you know some of that uh, has an emotional component. The, the psychological moves—they're not psychol—they—they don't—they're not emotional. Yeah, but the content obviously may have an emotional uh, strength and power in there. And the idea is that you. You can practice that metta in many different ways. You know, Sometimes you, the cheapest offer is I, I offer you coexistence. I'm not going to kick you out of my life, uh, knee pain. I'm not going to kick you out of my leg. Yeah, I can't really love you. I'm not really reverberating in profound gratitude, but <laughs> basically I'm not going to shove you out. Yeah? So your metta practice is at that moment a very sober offering of coexistence. Um, the exercise we've done with me together is 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 another exercise you know it is going to the
3: uh,
2: touching into other components not just metta there was as you recall some element of forgiveness in there some element of care some element of gratitude um and also the the, the capacity of your own power to reverberate or to resonate with something that that this is a slight emphasis now now this is all part of a huge package of how metta can be practiced that's what i understand acknowledging maybe also that what we experience profound warmth and connection with is always close to pain which is the ambivalence of metta. When we do metta practice, we go to where it hurts. You know, it's, we don't just generate nice feelings of loving kindness. That's ideal, but it's rarely the case. If you go deep, it's very clear that you're not just generators. You get to the places where it hurts, where it blocks, where it says, I don't want to love. Sorry, everybody but you. Yeah, And that is part of that practice. So I, I trust that you can contextualize that for yourself. And you bring the differing versions together somehow.
3: I guess what I'm trying to understand is, you know, like when you were using the image of dropping in mm. like, and, and contacting it, it was a very different from the image I used was of a grandmother that I felt loved me unconditionally, and I got caught up in the emotion of my granny, mm. and it carried through all of the rest of it. So mm-hmm. there was a point where it felt like I was caught in emotion as opposed to really befriending and understanding the nature of what was going on in relation to mm. the to the benefactor, to the friend, and mm. so forth. That's, and that's what I was trying to understand. Not that there was something wrong with it. It's just that it was so, It sort of, the emotion was like a veil as opposed
2: mm.
4: to... I, th- I think there's a real difference in perhaps the way that we are teaching this. And I think it's good to have those contrasts sometimes. I really do. Um, certainly the way I was teaching it, and I suspect partly the way Christina Barlett speak for herself about this, is that I was it's really much more of an investigation into the possibility of befriending. And I think I used the term, let's sit down and engage in an experiment, yeah. which is what this is, rather than a given that I can generate these states. It's a, that's why it's much more akin to a questioning rather than simply saying, oh yes, I've got this capacity within me and I can generate it towards even these, and as you know, we only went through a limited range today, ourself, the benefactor, and of course the dear friend. So we're going through a limited range, all of which are fairly close to us, so it's not the the neutral person or the difficult person, and yet there's still questions that hang around those individuals, certainly around ourselves, and and for example, in asking the question, you know, through the phrases that we use, extending those phrases, and inclining the mind in that particular way, we're, we're asking the question, is, is there that feeling when I utter those questions? Because actually, sometimes the answer that comes back for many people, I don't know if it did here, sometimes is, actually, I'm not worthy. I, this, doesn't, th- th- this doesn't resonate with me. This doesn't, uh, you know, I, I don't feel as if I deserve this. You know, on all of these things. Now, in a way, that is de- generating insight into the ways that we are through the possibility of cultivating that. So it's a slightly different emphasis. It's, a, it's an emphasis into that, I think, experiment of the possibility of developing and orienting our minds. Now with obviously experience, then you know, we, we hear much more things that come out of this practice the more we engage in it in this particular way. And I think it's a slightly different orientation to the way that uh, Kinshino presented it. So it's really trying to understand what, what would befriending mean in my case and what would it mean in the case of this collection of characters who we um, visualize or have a sense of.
0: I'd just like to add something, maybe briefly, and it's probably where we're going to end. I get the last word, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as, as much as we are clearly sensual beings, we are emotional beings. And the nature of the Vihara practices is I think they quite directly kind of lead in to that world of being an emotional being who responds and reacts quite strongly in different ways. And we have mixed relationships to our emotional lives. Sometimes we, we long for the aliveness of feeling quite powerful emotions. Sometimes we fear them. And very often, we have a tendency to get lost in them. So it's really good to acknowledge that the viharas do open, you know, door, many different doorways emotionally. That's not the point, we're not trying to get an emotion, we're not trying to have a particular kind of emotional experience, but they do open those doorways, and you know, in many ways, they open the doorway to also understanding our relationship to that world. Now, you know, I reflect on something um, Hubble once said, you know, that the lover has much in common with the hater, that both become preoccupied with the object of their passions, and both yield autonomy to the object of their passions. So, you know, there is something about, I think, more the tendency to get lost. So, you know, when we come to the difficult person in meta, it may unleash, you know, through associations all kinds of aversions and hatreds and dislikes. And what Metta is doing is bringing that emotional world, putting it onto the table and saying is there a different way of being present with this, rather than getting lost or fearing it or pursuing it, okay? So sometimes in those moments, you know, when you can feel they're getting lost, some people might really like that, some people might really doubt it. I think actually that's the time, you know, when we, we switch actually to using meta practice more in the concentration mode, you know, to steady the mind, you know, to stay with the phrases rather than being lost in the emotion. There's other times when we're not lost and we would open up that space, you know, as we've talked about, is just dropping the phrases in and seeing what, what responds. So don't think of the practice as being this kind of, you know, one way, you know, but clearly a lot of metapractice practice is about developing an emotional freedom, actually, rather than fostering patterns of emotional <coughs> lostness. So one has to really kind of be able to calibrate that a little bit inwardly to see, oh yes, here is this receptive space, that I can hold love in it, I can hold generosity in it, I can hold hatred in it. And sometimes it's not being held and I'm kind of diving into it. And that's maybe where we would calibrate the practice, you know. Uh, That would be my answer, actually. I had the last word, thank you. Um, (laughs)
2: Most befitting
1: last year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we're going to um, have a walking period now. We've gone a little bit over. So if we could ring the bell that, uh, to come back for 10 to 9, please. So who is ringing the bell? Sorry, somebody ringing the bell for that. Thank you very much. And I and I'm actually starting to appreciate the challenge of bell ringing. You know, when you know people, because now the bell ringing route is quite long. Uh, you know, we're we're actually going to take steps to address that. But if you could wait till everybody's out of the hall before you start ringing the bell. And, <laughs> But I do appreciate the challenge of it because, you know, if you're (coughs) thinking of a 15-minute walk in front of you, you know, you realize you've got to get on it. And thank you for everybody who is ringing the bell, by the way. I realize it's quite a responsibility and it's really appreciated.